Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 68 of the Speaking Club podcast. I'm in my 40s and the other day I told my friend I was feeling a bit old and she said, don't worry Sarah because 40s are the new 30s. I said, I'm not sure that's true because 10 years ago when my partner reached their hand towards my face, it was to caress me, not to pull a hair out of my chin. I started this podcast for two reasons, because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Welcome to show number 68. I am so chuffed that you have joined me. As ever, you're in for a treat because the guests that I've got lined up is a former journalist, a four-time best-selling author, an international speaker, a TV show host and an all-round nice guy. Today I am going to be joined by Carl Honoré. Carl is recognised for starting the slow movement, which is all about getting us to understand the benefits of bucking that cultural trend of doing everything as fast as possible and recognising that there are areas in our lives where it's better to be slow. In the show, he's going to talk to me about that and the story behind it. And we're also talking about how he had to overcome his terror at public speaking to make the transition from author to international speaker when his book became a bestseller. We're also delving into his new book, Boulder, which is all about looking at aging in a new way. And Carl basically shares his thinking on how he's going to put his keynote together for this new book during the interview is a great insight. Um, we cover a lot of ground and I know there's going to be treasure here for you. Now, before I cut over to the interview, I did want to tell you about my new show. It's called Story-Led Marketing and it's a show for anyone who wants to get some help with their marketing and using stories and humour in their content to connect more deeply with their customers. And I'll be sharing what's working in our company and what's not working. And also, to, and we're going to talk about the simple marketing system we've created to marry the best of the old days of those sort of direct response marketers with the new way we need to lead with value and connection to reach our target customers today. Now, if you're interested in listening to that show, I think there's about four episodes out now. Just search for Story-Led Marketing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, and all the other sort of podcast platforms. Alternatively, you can head over to storyledmarketing.co.uk slash podcast to listen to it on the website. That's storyledmarketing.co.uk slash podcast. Right, well, that's enough of that. Let's head over to the interview. So welcome to the Speaking Club, Carl Honoré. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. So I'm excited to talk to you because part of the subject that I'm one of the subjects that I'm going to cover with you today is is quite close to my heart and I worry about it a lot so I'm looking forward to that but um before we come to that tell me about your journey where you started off um how you got there and why you are where you are sure I I think I probably always had a save the world complex (laughs) as a teenager I set off to Brazil to and I worked with street children and orphans and so on and I, I I found that extraordinary experience but it I didn't feel like I was saving enough people and I've always at the same time loved language and writing and words and so on so I thought well I'll try and save the world by writing about it so I became a journalist and a foreign correspondent I started off in 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 Britain I was in Edinburgh which is where I went to university then I went out to back to South America though I was based in Buenos Aires I covered South America for The Economist, The Observer, Time Magazine, various people then I came back to London and was there for two or three years uh, covering Europe for uh, North American publications. And then I made the jump into writing books. And I st- my first three books have been about 
the what, what's come to be known as the slow movement. I guess I've become, in a way, the voice of that movement, uh, which is a, a reaction against the, the cult of speed and trying to do everything faster. And so I wrote three books on that subject, which I think of as my slow trilogy. Uh-huh. And then just now I have launched a new book, which for me is a fresh departure, and it's called Boulder, and it's about um, the whole longevity revolution, the fact that we're living longer, what that means, uh, the upsides of aging, and um, all that kind of stuff. So uh, that's, and I, still, I, li- I still live in London now. Cool. So, so, when te- so you're, you're not, you're, you have an accent. So where are you originally from? Well, originally, originally, I was born in Edinburgh. Oh, okay. My parents up sticks and emigrated to Canada when I was a baby. So I grew up in Canada. I'm Canadian. And I've done my best to hang on to my accent uh, through all these years of living in the UK. <laughs> so, so you're more British now than you are Canadian. I've lived a lot longer here than I've lived in Canada, definitely. <laughs> okay. And so and you, you, you had this sort of, what's triggered, first of all, that, that desire to save the world? Did something happen when you were young? That, that, or is this something that you just, that is a fire within you? I'm not sure if I can put a finger on any one episode or spark I, I think it was just as i began to read about the world in, in my teens and I, you know i studied history and I, I i just it just became something that i felt i wanted to do it it was the, the the fire in my belly i think always from from early on and i feel looking back over my life so far that it's been the animating north star i suppose is this idea of trying to leave the world a better place than i found it and i, I guess as you go through your life you find different ways to to put your creed into practice, <laughs> you know, you know, so, so, you know, whether it's working with street children or writing articles and now writing books and giving talks and I make TV shows and radio and stuff, I guess I'm always trying to, to leave something better behind, I suppose. Um, that's what gets me up in the morning. Is it so the, there, there's a desire to have a legacy? Yes, I suppose. I mean, I, I, legacy is maybe not the word I would use because that sounds a little bit to me and to my ear that lands a little bit, as a kind of self-seeking thing. You're, you're trying to place a blue plaque uh-huh. <coughs> on a wall in London where people will remember you. I, I, I'm not so worried about people remembering me, to be honest, but I, I just feel like I would like when I'm lying on my deathbed, when I'm lying on my deathbed and looking back on my life, I want to feel like I, I wasn't in it for myself somehow, that I, you know, that I was trying to, to, to lift other people up and to make, make the world a better place somehow. And I, that's what I want to feel when i'm at the end of my days looking back <laughs> no it's it's it, i i'm i'm with you on that one that's that's brilliant and and i guess the question that i'm thinking about is so obviously you were a journalist a foreign correspondent um making a difference in that way by shining a light on things that were going on in the world how did you what was it that triggered you to to switch uh, and to fi- and to feel that you needed to highlight this whole issue of you know, the need to be slow? Well, I think various things intersected in my, my own life there. And also in the world, the, the media has changed immensely. It's hardly recognizable journalism today yeah. compared to what it was when I was practicing it in the late 90s and early 2000s. It, it, you know, people just have so little time and it just feels like, a, I began to feel towards the end of my career as a journalist, a full-time journalist, that I had become, rather than somebody who is usefully shining a light on injustice and iniquity and so on and changing the world. I just felt like I'd become another wing of the infotainment industry. And I, I don't know, I just didn't feel like I was actually moving anything in the right direction. And I can, I now looking back where I am now and having got, you know, 15 years of on the other side of that fence, if you like writing books and, you know, TV, radio and all this other stuff I do now. And I think of the impact that's had on people and how I open up my inbox every day and I hear from somebody or on social media who says that my words through my books or whatever or talks have completely changed their lives or altered the way they see themselves in the world or the way they're running their company or their family or whatever it is. And I think back to when I was a journalist and I could probably count on the fingers of one hand the number of times I heard from a reader who said what you wrote, you know, changed my, so I, I, I feel like I made the right decision, but that was, you know, that's sort of the way that those careers are structured. Something else happened personally for me because I think whenever I write a book now, it always starts from a moment of personal epiphany when I realize that I've lost my compass and I need to sort 
something. I need to do my own emotional existential housework, if you like. And that, <laughs> that, that happened with me because as a foreign correspondent, a naturally fast person, I had got stuck in fast forward towards the end of my journalistic career. I, I was just, every moment of my day had become a race against the clock. I was skimming the surface of everything. And I had a wake up call when I started reading bedtime stories to my son, who at the time was, you know, two, three, four. And I just found myself, you know, speed reading Snow White. I became an expert in what I called the multiple page turn technique. <laughs> <laughs> it's just awful. You know, my version of Snow White had three dwarves. It was just horrendous. And, I, and yet I carried on on this track, you know, just this roadrunner until I caught myself flirting with buying a book I'd heard about called The One Minute Bedtime Story, Snow White in 60 Seconds, and catching oh my myself thinking, great idea. I need that from Amazon, you know, drone delivery. And that was, that was my moment of truth. It was like an out-of-body experience. I just suddenly thought, I've lost my way. I've lost my mind here. This is not the life I want to be leading. And, and then I took a step back. That was towards the very end of my journalism career. The, the final series of articles I actually wrote for the paper I was working for at the time called the National Post of Canada was on this whole idea of slowing down. I wrote this big series, five articles. And that was almost like my signing off from the world of journalism. I got contacted by publishers. I got an agent and then made the move into writing a book about it, which was my first book in Praise is Slow. So all of these things kind of intersected at the same time, work-wise, the way the world was changing, my own realization that I'd kind of lost my, my path. And, and it all just sort of fell together perfectly. I mean, it just felt like the stars were aligned. I immediately wrote a, a proposal for that book. It sold, you know, it's now in what, 35 languages and it immediately caught even before I'd written the first word of it and has just gone on and on ever since. And in fact, now it's the 15th anniversary of In Praise of Slow. It's coming up in a new edition with a preface by me and it just, you know, just keeps on going. And I just think it shows that we desperately need this, right? We are a society stuck in fast forward and it's backfiring us in every way imaginable. And more and more people now are embracing the idea that you know, faster is not always better and that slowness has a role to play in the 21st century. And it's exciting for me and fitting in with my whole save the world <laughs> complex. You know, it's, it's thrilling and gratifying and humbling to be quite near the center of all this, right? You know, to be the, kind of the, the middle of this wheel of slowness and, and hearing what people are doing. It's, it's, um, it's amazing. Yeah, it's really, you know, it does feel like you're on a treadmill I mean I don't know if you know that I mean I can really relate to what you're saying I haven't I haven't read the book yet and I will uh, do so it's it's frightening to take your foot off the accelerator pedal though in some ways and I guess you know in terms of your life from writing that first article how much has your life changed from you know from what it was before mm. to, to what it, the way you live it today Hugely. I mean, I've got a very clear before and after. My before, I was, you know, the tortoise and the hare. I, I was the hare. I was the roadrunner. Every moment was a dash to the finish line. I always felt rushed. I never felt like I had enough time. That was my before. My after is completely different. I, I still have a very exciting life. I, you know, travel. I love my work. I get stuff done. I, I take great pleasure from things. I have a great social life. You know, I love my life, but I never feel rushed anymore. I just, I've, I've reconnected with my inner tortoise, if you like, you know, I know when it, when, because the whole idea of this slow philosophy is not about doing everything slowly. That would be ridiculous. You know, I'm not a, an extremist or a fundamentalist of slowness. I love speed, right? I'm a naturally fast person. I live in London. I play ice hockey. I love fast, right? You know, but, but this slow revolution is about the idea that faster is not always better. It's about doing things at the right speed, right? So changing gears, sometimes fast, sometimes slow, playing with all those different speeds in between, you know, doing fewer things, but giving them your full attention, being mindful, being present, all that stuff. And for me, that's been a tectonic shift. And I look back on where I was, you know, at the beginning of this transformation back, you know, 15 years ago, and I just wish that I had wised up to the, the folly of trying to do everything faster sooner, because I just, there were some years there where I can barely remember what, what, what happened. You know, I was just going so fast and I wasn't really enjoying things. And now it's just not, that's the opposite, right? I, I'm here. If you need me to be fast, I can be as fast as anyone on earth right? needs yeah. to be. But, but I've also, I can also, I can also slow and, yeah. and shift it down. And, and it's, I've, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back and I, I just wish I'd done it sooner. <laughs> 
It's brilliant. And I, I guess it's really interesting because you mentioned mindfulness. And I, I don't know if those, the, the other thing that popped into my mind was the, the minimalist movement as well. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be almost in some sense a rewinding of the clock in terms of the way, you know, taking advantage of the things that technology can offer us, but so that it serves us rather than us being servants of technology. And that, that seems to, it feels like you're in, in that space, you know, of, of taking back control rather than being uh, at the mercy of, of the way the world has changed. Exactly. I think, I think there's a, if you could imagine a Venn diagram, you've got a circle here for mindfulness, a circle for minimalism, a circle for slow, and, and there's a big, big sweet spot in the middle. Mm. And I think the way you've framed it is, is spot on. I think we're trying to get back to some old basic human truths about what we need as people to thrive, to be the best version of ourselves, to, to connect with other people. And what we need collectively as a society, we, 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 we don't need more and more faster and faster. Yeah. You know, we, of course, this is not, and the slow movement I think is very much in this mode. It's not about, I don't think of it as kind of a backward looking Luddite, you know, let's go back to another golden era because there's never was a golden era. Right? <laughs> every, every era, every epoch has its strengths and weaknesses, its sorrows and comforts. And, you know, I love the technology and I think tech, tech can be an amazing boon to everything from our productivity to our social lives to, to creativity and art and everything. So I, I'm, I'm all for that. But I do think that we, when new things come along, we go too far, we go overboard and the pendulum swings too far to one side. And I think we're now getting to that stage where we realize that we want to keep what's really good about the speed of culture in the early 21st century. But we want to marry that with some of the, the older, slower truths about what it is to be a human being in the world. And that, that, that blend, that amalgam, that hybrid, I think is where the, that's when the music and the magic happens, right? When you get yeah. that balance between fast and slow. And that's where the world is moving, right? It's, it, it has to. We can't, the planet cannot sustain a world of turbo everything, turbo capitalism, turbo consumers. It just can't. It's falling apart at the seams. And we as people are falling apart at the seams too. And more and more we're realizing it. And I'm immensely optimistic. I mean, I, I just taking the kind of 30,000 foot view of this whole slow culture quake that I've been kind of spearheading in a way you know, when I first, the idea first got floated and the book first came out, I thought it would be carnage, right? I thought there'd be blood on the floor. I thought people would, a lot of people would hate it. The business community, especially corporate world. Not, not at all. No, I mean, they were all over it from the start, you know, um, embracing this idea that slow has a role to play. And in fact, not so long ago, the Economist magazine did a big survey looking at the pace in the modern workplace. And they came to a conclusion that is in fact a perfect perfect summation of this slow philosophy the final two lines of that article were forget frantic acceleration mastering the clock of business means choosing when to be fast and when to be slow right and there it is in a nutshell right the slow philosophy when to be fast when to be slow that that gear changing that moving up and down the different cadences and rhythms and that's the economist magazine right it's not Buddhist Monthly or Acupuncture Weekly, right? It's the in-house Bible of the, the go-getters, the entrepreneurs, the ambitious people, the, the fast people who want to go out and do things in the world. And they are coming to the same conclusion, which is that patience is a virtue and that slow has a role to play in the 21st century, a key role, right? Right up there alongside fast. That's brilliant. I, I love the fact that you're optimistic. There's so much uh to to be pessimistic about in the world at the moment that it's it's great to you know to to hear that and i, I hope that this sort of does flourish as a, as a movement and i saw a trailer for a program where um one of your programs where you're helping an australian family and this mum had scheduled her son to be going for 13 hours a day yeah. how, how did you i it was just the trailer so i didn't see the program how did you sort that out how did you get her to sort of see the light on that well she was particularly a difficult nut to crack uh, um, it was it was a program called frantic family rescue yeah. which I you know the title says it all it's a bit like we all know super nanny right essentially I'm slow nanny so I get <laughs> very fast wired super rushed families for a month and I've got to slow them down and it's tricky because you know the whole point of slowing down is that you really it's a process right it's a long-term project especially if you are completely marinated in speed, it's like a drug addict, right? You know, yeah. you get withdrawal symptoms, 
if you go on a quick detox, you know, you, you, it takes time to get over that need for the fix. So I had a month, which isn't that long, but within that month, you can, you can do things. So, you know, I, I came down quite hard and forced people to go cold turkey, cut schedules, took away screens, all that stuff. And yeah, there was a lot of pushback in the early days, but all the families in one form or another, perhaps less this particular mom, but definitely the other families, you know, embraced the idea, having at first been very skeptical and uneasy about the idea of putting on the brakes, you know, really came to understand the value of carving out moments to just read stories together or have an evening meal without everybody looking at their phones or going for a walk, right? Uh, it's just simple stuff that we've always done or that we've kind of lost the art of doing in a world where everybody's in their own room looking at Netflix. You know, so trying to help them just have a, f a flavor of what it's like to shift gears over a month. And then I then, at the end of that, I walk away. Of course, I can't stay there forever. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm still in touch with a couple of the families and I know that they've carried on doing some of these things. So even the most revved up, <laughs> super fast families, you know, can, 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 can find their inner tortoise. And I think that's a hopeful message to take away for anyone listening to this podcast now, right? Is that there is no such thing as a lost cause, right? You know, yeah. you can take a, you can take an 11 year old as I did in this one program who was playing four or five hours a day of FIFA football Xbox, right? They just, his parents had pretty much thrown in the towel and he turned around in that month, you know, he now rides his bike, he plays his Xbox in very limited times on the weekend. He's met friends in the street. He didn't even know we're there. Oh, wow. <laughs> building a fort in the backyard. So, you know, I even when I first met him, I thought, whoa, you know, can this really be turned around, especially in a month? But it can. And that's the message here. No one is a lost cause. Everyone can slow down. Brilliant. And from your life and I guess the people that you have impacted in, in their feedback, what, what are the sort of top five benefits of slowing down for people? What, what can they get from it? I think uh, this is in no particular order. I think definitely health. Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that's taking a real toll on our bodies is this fast forward, always on culture. We're just burning ourselves out. So when people slow down, they have more paradoxically, because we think of slow as being lazy, torpid, couch potato. Actually, if you slow down in the right way, you've got so much more energy because you're not burned out and going fast all the time. So people have better health. Yeah. Number two, I think creativity goes up. There's an intimate bond between creation and taking time to, to, to soak in ideas, to let things bubble up. And, and uh, uh, you know, psychologists actually call that slow thinking, right? You get into that richer, more nuanced, more creative mode of thought by slowing down. So you get more creativity. That's number two. Number three, more pleasure, right? Instead of trying to do four things at once, you're doing one thing and you're giving it your full attention. You're there, you're present, you're in the moment. Uh, so, so, so you just enjoy your life more. Um, a fourth thing would be relationships. And I think that's a key one here is that people are racing through social moments in a way now, you know, we're, you know, we're with people, but we're not, we're in three moments at once because we're looking at Instagram or we're, we're spending more time cultivating relationships on Facebook than we are face to face. Yeah. And, and as when people slow down, you find that you get those deeper, you know, more meaningful, more, more textured relationships, whether it's friendship, a parent, child, lovers, partners, whatever it is, or a boss, colleague, right? You just get more togetherness. Um, and then I think there's a, a bigger, I'll put as a number five, you asked for five, I would say that because those first four feel very personal and individual, I think there's a collective gain when we slow down because we become less self-centered. We become less selfish through those connections. We become more aware of how our actions and words affect other people. I think we become more, there's more solidarity. We're more, we're less, we're just less self-obsessed. We're less selfish, I think, when we slow down. And that's, goodness me, that's what we all need as a society now, is to be less solipsistic, less self-obsessed, and more giving, more connected to a bigger picture and, and thinking long-term and so on. So those would be a, a pack of five benefits right there. Brilliant. No, they're the, they sound uh, fantastic if we can get those back into your life i know there's loads that i need to to get working on in my life and and i want to now i want to turn to your new book now i'm particularly as someone who's heading towards 50 and a partner who's 19 years younger i'm quite sensitive about getting older mm -hmm. and your new book bolder which has had some fabulous coverage in the press and the media um it, it, this you mentioned at the start that these books tend to be a bit of a, a personal odyssey for you. Can you tell me about that, how it came about? Uh, and yeah, what, what is it 
all about and what did you find out? Sure. Well, for me, the spark riding Boulder came when I was at a hockey tournament up in uh, Gateshead. Gateshead. In um, Gateshead, no, in um, New, outside Newcastle. Yeah. And I was, you know, I, I w- I'm now 51. At the time, I was 48. And I was ca- captaining my team. And we were, you know, I was having a great time. We were playing really well. I scored an amazing goal to get my team into the semifinals. And I went into the dressing room. And there was one of the organizers there surrounded by mounds of smelly hockey equipment. He was, he was flicking through player profiles, looking at people's ages. And he worked out that uh, the youngest player at the tournament, a tournament of 240 players, was 16. And somebody said, well, who's the oldest? And he was flicking through and he, he turned to me and he said, you're the oldest. And it was, it was an extraordinary moment somehow. It, somehow that knowledge just, I don't know, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I, don't know, I, I just felt so awful in that moment. I, of course, I knew that I was one of the older players there. Um, you know, I could just see by looking. Something about being the oldest, I, I don't know, it just was like, again, one of those out-of-body experiences. And I, I just felt this awful rush of shame. And I began to think, well, should I be here? Uh, am I the, you know, 50-something dude with the 20-something girlfriend? Are people <laughs> laughing at me? Should I be taking up a, a more mental pursuit like bingo or something? And I just, I don't know, it was just some, something I, that, that the, the number at that time, 48, suddenly acquired in my mind this immense power, this terrible power over me. And it shook me. It shook me to the core. And I, as I was coming home in the train with my teammates, I could just feel in the back of my mind, I could feel my mind starting to work on this. And I thought, well, you know, I've been, I've always been, I had been up until that point, very ageist, you know, had a very dim, downbeat view of growing older. And, 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 and I guess I pushed it aside and kind of ignored it. And, and that, it all just suddenly came down on me in one go. And I began to sort of wonder, well, is aging really as bad as it seems? You know, here I am at 48, you know, lighting up a hockey tournament. Why, 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 is, why should aging, why should life be this downward spiral to decline, decrepitude, depression, poverty, dementia, loneliness, all this stuff from the age of 30, right? Or 35 or wherever it is we draw the line these days in the cult of youth. And I thought, well, no, it's clearly not. There must be something more. Maybe there's another story to tell about aging here. One that's not just grim, bleak, and depressing. Yeah. And that was kind of the starting point for writing the book. And, I, and the good news is that I found that there is a whole other story and that you know, there's an awful lot of upside to an aging population collectively, but also for us, to the, all the good things that can happen as we grow older that we often just ignore or can't believe quite are happening or will happen. And, and I feel, again, now I feel having written this book immensely more optimistic about, now I'm 51 now, the next, whatever, 30, 40 years awaiting me. I just wish I'd written this book, Boulder, 20 years ago. You know, I would have saved myself 20 years of just feeling bad about getting older and anxiety and dread and guilt and shame, all this stuff that's attached to the very act of advancing one more year after a certain point. I just wish I'd, you know, it's too late now to go back, but I wish I had. I'm glad I've done it now and not waited till I was 75 or something. I suppose I can look at it that as a glass half full scenario. But um, yeah, so I, that's, the, that's the essence of the book is about how we can age better. I feel that we're entering a golden age of aging. This is the better, best time ever in human history to be older, and it's going to get better and better. And there are so many things that get better as you get older that we don't even think about that just totally blew me away. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm feeling pretty upbeat about things now. Okay, I'll, I'll <laughs> explore that a little, a little more. I, I just wanted to pick up one of the things that you, you said was that over 60s are the happiest in Britain. And you said that you, th- just now, you said things are only going to get better. That a lot, I guess a lot, certainly in the UK, I don't know if this is true uh, in other parts of the world, that, that that generation that are sort of there now have got the best that it's ever going to be because they've got the pension, they're financially secure. And, and, you know, for, for the next generations coming through retirement's probably not going to be the same as it is for these people today. You know, then the pension schemes aren't going to be there. The financial security is not going to be there as well. Um, do you think that that's linked to their happy, to their happiness? Or do you think that it's a, it's a, I think it's, thing? I think it's more complicated than that. And, and, and certainly when you look at any kind of happiness studies, uh, wealth helps up to a point, but not that high a point, right? Okay. Across all age groups, if they look at, you know, happiness, I think they found that it, it helps, it contributes up to about, is it, I think it might even be sort of 17,000 a year or 20, I mean, you know, anything beyond that doesn't increase your happiness. And I think it's similar if you drill down into the statistics, looking at 
and it's not just Britain that you find this, this is a universal phenomenon that they call it the U-shaped happiness curve, that people often will bottom out happiness-wise where you and I are in late 40s, early 50s, and then it picks up again and people are at their happiest with highest levels of life satisfaction in, in, in you know, 55 and, and beyond. And that cuts across all ethnic groups, all social economic income levels, and you find it in cultures. They even have found examples of this or hints of it in chimpanzee and orangutans, which suggests that there's a kind of, it may be hardwired into our primate genes that we find this sense of well-being and happiness and life satisfaction later in life, no matter what our pension pot looks like or how big, how big our house is or whether we even own a house. So, of course, wealth is is a helpful thing, right? And it can boost all kinds of stuff. It can help you be healthier. It can help you be happier up to a point. And, and we need to rethink, this is part of what I'm arguing in the book, that we can't carry on with the old straitjacket approach to life cycle as we've had for you know, a good century now with learning in the early years, earning in children in the middle, and then pension leisure from 60, whatever, two, four, wherever we're drawing the line at the moment. That just can't work anymore when people are living mainly into their 80s, right? We need to throw the pieces up in the air and have something much more fluid where people are learning all the way through their lives, earning all the way through their lives. You know, I'm not saying people have to, you know, work like stakhanovites and do seven day weeks into their 80s, of course not. But this idea that you suddenly stop at 65 and, and are no longer useful is just preposterous because older people, actually workers, can bring huge benefits to the workplace party. Um, so I think we're going to be and we are starting now to kind of free up that life path, make something much more fluid. And so it's difficult, I think, because now we think, okay, yeah, millennials are thinking, well, I won't have the pension pot, I won't have, but that world is gonna be so different by the time they get there. Yeah. That in a way, you have to focus on the universals and to, to imagine what later life will be like. And the universals are telling us, as I've just outlined with this whole happiness, U-shaped curve and stuff, they're pointing in a good direction, right? And And, you know, I think that I also think that we're also starting to rethink how we run, you know, the whole kind of pension thing and, and, and things will change. So I, I think there are grounds here to be optimistic, definitely on that front. Cool. And I always think it's, it's, it's one of those ironies, actually, that, you know, certainly I, mean, I have a, a, a corporate background in, in, you know, in HR. We, there was always this big thing about, you know, once you're over a certain age, you know, employers aren't interested in you, but then, but then it's, it's the, often the older generation that the people with wisdom that are running countries. I mean, it's, it's changing slightly, but you're not fit to govern a country necessarily until you've had the wisdom that a long life brings. And it's that really interesting. It's, it's good enough to, to, to run a country, but not good enough to, to do a job. I think things are shifting because they have to, because talent is also short, but that's also struck me as a bit of a, you know, a contradiction there. Yeah, I mean, that's something I look at in the book is the, the deep-rooted ageism in the workplace. And that's, that's still with us. You know, I, I'm not a Pollyanna, right? I mean, I, I see things for what they are. I'm a yeah. natural skeptic and a journalist. So, you know, I'm not painting the world as I want it to be. Uh, but but things, things are changing. Uh, for a start, as you say, we're, you know, we have less labor around. As the demographics shift, there are more older people about, which is strength in numbers. People are going to have to start using that labor pool. And the, the upside, of course, is that Older people do bring amazing things to 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 uh, to the workplace. Um, you know, you see it not just running countries, but we're seeing it more and more in companies. You know, just a couple of examples. They've shown that uh, you know the whole kind of push toward diversity, having ethnically diverse, uh, gender diverse uh, teams. Those teams are more effective. The same applies for age. That when you have a wide range of ages, the teams collaborate better and cooperate better and are, are often more productive. Uh, you know, when the companies put in suggestion boxes. The best suggestions tend to come from older workers and the best ones tend to come from the over 55s, right? Um, creativity is another thing. You know, we know now that the brain evolves as we grow older, we start using it in a more integrated way and people can be amazingly creative in later life. Uh, the Turner Prize here in Britain, right? You know, which is traditionally uh, offered to, open to people up to the age of 50, right? It's supposed to celebrate a creative breakthrough in an artist's career. Uh, you know, until, until 2017, you had to be under 50 to qualify. They abolished it in 50 in, in, in 2017. The reason being, and the, the phrase they used was an artist can experience a breakthrough in their creativity at any age, right? Those three words there, at any age. And that's more and more the case across the, 
the workplace. Uh, you know, the, the other thing is that productivity goes up in jobs that depend on social skills because our social skills improve generally as we get older. We get sharper social acumen. We read people better. We're better at listening. Our vocabulary expands. We have more general knowledge. We're often a bit more patient. We're more at ease with ourselves. And you know what? The future of the job market is going to lie in social skills and creativity, right? Two things that clearly get better as we age. So all of the arguments are there, right? For companies to be embracing and moving away from this toxic idea. We, we, you know that phrase, finished at 40, right? You know? yeah. <laughs> Which is so silly. It's just folly on a grand scale. But, you know, it's, 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 it's hardwired into a lot of corporate thinking. Less and less, though. And I do see more and more changes as companies are reaching out, creating programs, uh, you know, to, to attract older workers or changing the way they interview, uh, all kinds of things as they're starting to realize that it's in their best interest, right? It's good for the bottom line. It's not just to give companies a warm, fuzzy feeling that they're giving jobs to older people. It's good for the bottom line, right? Absolutely. So there's a compelling argument here for, for widening that age lens in the workplace. And it, it is starting to happen. Brilliant. And, and so the book, it's out now boulder it is yeah it's out in the uk and commonwealth apart from canada that's coming out in, in uh, march 2019 but yeah, yeah it's, out, it's out in the world now and, and it will be coming out in other languages um as and as and when the translators <laughs> get it out there <laughs> excellent and then i'll tie up at the end in terms of where people can get the book and find out more about you but in the meantime i want to talk to you about your speaking now because you know you are uh, an international speaker um, speaking on the subject of slow. Are you doing any talks yet on Boulder or uh, is, is that something that's going to be coming? I sat on my first panel on this subject last week and I'm already now booking some talks. I'm preparing my first sort of big keynote. I'm, and that's the thing I'm actually working on at the moment. Right. And I've got a few things. I've got something booked and I'm going to be speaking in, on this subject about Boulder and Cluj, Romania in June. I've got uh, a couple of a few talks lined up in Canada in March. So things are starting to, to happen. And um, yeah, so it's, it's a good sign. I think people are hungry to go beyond the book and to have, you know, well, not just me, but because people, other people speak on the subject, but um, yeah. I'll, be, I'll more. be on the stage. Yeah. I'm making that move from page to stage. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just talk about that, that journey. So have you always spoken um, you know, when you were a journalist or did that, that transition happen when you, you wrote the first book? It came out completely after I took up books. I, I've always had a horror of public speaking growing up. Interesting. As a, as, a, as a teenager, I just, I was terrified of it. In fact, the one, you know, when you look back on your life and you think of the things that you really regret, it's always the things you didn't do, right? Yes. One of my biggest regrets in life is when I was, Going, you know, just before my final year in high school, there was, a, there was a big UN camp that was held in the mountains near where I grew up in Canada. And all my friends went and you, you, you went along and you, each person was assigned a country and you had to give a speech right in the General Assembly defending your country's position on a certain issue. And I didn't go because I was, I was too scared to stand up and give the talk. And I've always so, so regretted not doing that. And I, but I never, you know, I, all the way through my journalistic career, I, didn't really do public speaking. I did a bit of radio, but I didn't, I just didn't like the idea of getting up in front of more than three people. I didn't know until the, until my first book came out and praise was slow. Then I had to, because you just are forced, you're thrown in, um, you know, to the lions as it were, yeah. you know, in bookshops to start with and then events. And I just had to do it. And I, I found that I could do it. I could do it well. And I really, really enjoyed it. So it, it became a whole other string in my bow and, and, and another kind of track for me to play with words and get ideas out there and try and save the world. So I, I, I love the, the, the dance I'm able to do between the, the, the solitude and in a sense, the slowness, the quiet of, of writing, thinking and writing and you know, putting words on a page and then the, the showbiz and the yeah. razzmatazz and the, the kind of inspiration and the, the laughter and all that stuff that happens on stage. So I, I, I love that I can do both of those things now. And the fear that you felt, you know, back, you know, for that UN uh, camp. And do you know what that was about? What was there something again that caused that? Or was it just, you know, what was your concern? What was your fear about? I, I don't know what it was. I, I've often tried to parse that. I just, I, I don't know. I, I never had any kind of particular trauma. I didn't get laughed down in front of the school in an assembly at any point. And nothing ever happened that I could put my 
finger on and say, well, that's where it all started. I, I sometimes wonder if it's because I've got a bit of a perfectionist streak. Yeah. And, you know, that is an easier thing to unravel and get to grips with when you're on your own. Yeah. Sitting in front of the computer or the keyboard and you can kind of exercise those demons maybe more easily by yourself. There's something so public about being on stage. I mean, that's what it is. It's public, right? It's a public yeah. act. And if you're up there worrying about everything being just right, maybe, I don't know, I, 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 that, I'm playing, call it psychology here, so I don't know if that's what it, but I wonder if maybe that's partly it, that I just was afraid of not being perfect. So I, I don't know. Fear of failure, yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe it was that, I guess. Interesting. So considering that you, that you have this sort of perfectionist streak in you, how do you actually prepare for your talks? Can you take me through that process? Yeah, I do, I do a lot of uh, rehearsal, a lot of thinking before about what I'm going to say and how I'm going to say it. And then I do, I do a lot of rehearsing. I do a lot of standing in front of the mirror. I'm walking down the street, talking through things in my head that I want to say. And so, yeah, no, I don't, um, I, I don't, I, I don't, I mean, I'm not even sure if anybody just gets up there and wings it. I think the, the best speakers are people who give the impression of winging it, right? Like it's always seems like, they're stumbling across this formula of words for the first time. It's all box fresh, but in fact, they've, they've, you know, honed it and polished it up at home and probably said the same words or versions of them many times before. And I guess the magic is in trying to make it sound like it's the first time you've ever said some of these things. Sometimes it is because each audience I try and, you know, bring something a bit different and I'm always adding new examples and injecting new anecdotes. But I guess for me, it's, how do I deal with the perfectionist worry? It's rehearsal, right? Rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's the, you know, people shy away from it, but it's almost, I don't know if you've experienced this when you, when you are, you know, whether it's performing as a, as an actor or a comedian or, or a speaker, you have to re rehearse to the point where you get, it becomes, you get fed up with it. And then it actually, you get hit this curve where it becomes more natural again. And it's sort of, people sort of give up sometimes before they get, through that hump where it, it, it becomes so familiar to you that you're able to make it sound more natural than, than you know, than you yeah. do at the beginning. I think there's a lot of truth in that, that there's a, you have to push through that barrier. Yeah. And at some point you almost feel like you're hitting rock bottom because you're just feeling, you feel like you're, you're deadening the material. <laughs> you're over, over, overdoing it. But no, I think you're right. You, it's, I suppose it's like any kind of expertise, isn't it? You have to master something before you can play with it. Exactly. And that's the same in science. It's the same in the arts. If you're a painter, a musician, you've got to master the basics. It's like Picasso, right? Could draw like, I think he said he could draw like Raphael when he was nine, but it was only later that he was able to, you know, un undo that and do interesting things with it. So yeah, I think it's the old, I guess it's got a slow underlying message to it. Isn't it? It's practice makes perfect and, and practice, practice is slow. It takes time. You can't rush it. Yeah, absolutely. And and how does the because you obviously you start off with the book. How do you take you know how do you choose from the book to put into a talk? How do you structure the talk to ref, to reflect the best? Yeah, that's um, really hard. That, I'm finding that particularly hard with this new book because I'm it's such new territory for me. And I you've got to get, you you need to have stories, right? I mean that's how we win. That's how we influence that's how we bring people along with us is telling stories you've got to i suppose you pluck out key stories key themes you ally themes with stories the key thing is the, the tricky thing is getting the architecture right i suppose um you want to you want threads to be running through it you also want especially something with like boulder which is such a it's quite a complex book in a sense that it's not a you know, I think a lot of books about aging that I, because I read a lot of them, right? So, you know, they're, they're either from the kind of, often from the kind of misery memoir where everything is just, everything's awful about it, or they're from this kind of rah, rah, rah cheerleader. Everybody's kite surfing at 94 and why aren't you? Yeah. My book is much more nuanced than that, right? I'm, I'm saying, yeah, there's, there's some rough here and we need to think about how we're going to deal with that collectively and alone. And, but there's a lot of smooth as well. And it's kind of, it's, it's, it's got shades, right? It's chiaroscuro. It's got uh, different colors and, um, cues to play with so I'm not quite sure exactly how to I don't know you know what I think is crucial as well is getting the right first story and I'm not sure you know do I start with I've always my other talks I've started with a personal story 
that often is the story starting point for the book. Do I start with that starting point from the book about the hockey tournament? Does that get me where I want to go? I don't know. I, I'm probably not being very helpful to your listeners. No, no, it's, it's interesting to see. I'm kind of thinking out loud as I go, because I'm really in the middle of it at the moment. So I'm, I'm going for a lot of long walks and I'm testing out stories and I'm, you know, phrases and trying to work out. I'm just waiting for something to, to become clear. It feels very nebulous at the moment to me. And I, I can see the silhouette just of the yeah. talk, but it's just the silhouette, right? It's, yeah, it's 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 like a kind of gothic ghost disappearing, <laughs> coming coming in and out of focus. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's interesting though because they, they they I think those origin stories, those epiphany moments, do if they if your audience has had similar, they can you know resonate. I mean, it's it's you know they, they everyone's had that moment. I would have thought. But I guess it depends on who your target audience is for the talk as well <laughs> in terms of. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting one. I suppose, I mean, I guess my target audience is, is just really, it's quite wide. It's just anyone who's worried about or thinking about growing older and what it means. Yeah. So, so I, you know, that could be anyone from, I mean, I'd love to get in front. And I, I think I probably will because I do a lot of speaking at the moment in schools and to parents and teachers and stuff. And I know that some of the schools I've worked with have said, well, we really like this as an idea that, you know, to put in front of uh, pupils, right? You know, teenagers, getting them to think already about this arc of life and, and, how to approach, how to think about moving through your 20s, 30s, into your 40s, and what's it all going to look like, and how should you embrace it rather than recoil from it, and so on. So, you know, I could find, easily find myself in front of, a, in front of you know, surly teens or, um, you know, a skeptical 70-something. I know it could be anything and anything in between, um, and probably some of the mixed audiences. Uh, you're so right about the origin story, though. That I know that from all the other speaking I do around slow, that, you, God, you you have to have a story that for a talk that just gets, can get anyone, Yeah. you know, it may well be that that some version of the hockey story is what, what comes out in the wash. You know, it, it, I think what will get anyone is that feeling of, especially maybe not so much a teenager, but that idea of that kind of cold icy moment when you suddenly feel old <laughs> where you feel judged for being old or older or something, or suddenly I was talking earlier when we kicked off about, age the number suddenly having this terrible power over you and shaping how you feel about yourself and how you what you feel you deserve in your life i, I it, it's something it maybe it may lie somewhere in that the story and mm. and that might be the framing um i don't know i, I i'm gonna have to go but i will probably go back and listen to this podcast later <laughs> on because i i this is sort of interesting to me i'm kind of pouring out all the things i'm thinking about the talk and when <laughs> i talk it'll be interesting to kind of rewind and hear myself talking about it trying to make how you're thinking it's, yeah, really, yeah. it's really interesting because i have a a, a great aunt actually who for <sighs> years she, she turned 80 and for years you know before 80 and even after 80 she she was reluctant to tell anyone her age you you couldn't talk to her about her age mm -hmm. you, you know but now this year she's turning 90 and actually she's quite embracing that so it's now become a bit of a badge of honor <laughs> so yeah. it's yeah. really interesting I think that often happens is that people, once they get past about 80 or maybe 85, it does become a point of prestige, right? It's, you know, I'm 90 now or I'm 91. Right? I've made it. <laughs> but it does mean that we've got a lot of decades in between where we still feel pretty ashamed of being whatever it is, 48 or 52 or, you know, or lying about our age. I mean, you saw that, you saw that story recently, presumably about that guy in um, Holland who wanted, who went to court. Yes. To, to allow himself to identify he was 69 he wanted to identify as a 49 year old on tinder and so because he thought he'd get more dates <laughs> and, you know, that's, that, that is that is a, a perfect example of how we just we're just doing aging wrong right <laughs> that we yeah, just exactly number to, to define us in ways of course i mean i i always shy away from this you know 60s the new 40 50s the new third because it isn't you know 50 is still 50 and 60 is still 60 i think the number is important but what it shouldn't do is become the all-defining characteristic it should and i think that's the trouble is it's become a like a kind of has almost like a talismanic power over us to 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 you know to to shape how we interact with other people or or the things we allow ourselves to do or to try or to play around with and, and we need to get that off our back but but you know 
aging is still there, right? You know, you're, you're, no one is the same at 50 as they were at 30. They just aren't, right? Yeah. It'd be kind of weird and creepy if they were. And, and it's much more about saying, okay, I'm 50 and, and telling the world I'm 50 or I'm 51 and that's fine, you know? But, yeah. but to create a world where people do not feel so defined by the number, I think that's where we want to go. And, and we are moving in that direction. I mean, one example is that Amazon and Netflix no longer profile their users by age. They do it by taste. Oh. And, and that shows, you know, that this, that's a seismic shift. That shows that what really matters more and more now is less the numbers on your birth certificate and more who you are as a person, what you bring to the party. You know, what really matters now is what, what shows you watch on Netflix, right? Or what art moves you, or what books you read, or what food you cook for the people you love, where you like to travel, how you move, <laughs> what, you know, music that you dance to, that's what really matters and, and always has, but needs to matter more now. And I think is mattering more and more now as people do slough off this yoke of the number. And, you know, I was at a concert, you know, a music that was Paul Simon recently. I, you know, from Simon and Garfunkel way yeah. back and I've always had a soft spot for Paul Simon went along and, you know, it was, you know, it was just full of people from teenagers all the way up to people in their A's. You know, and I think that's where we're going now. We're, a lot of the cultural barriers are falling down. We're smoothing out those lines between the generations. And again, that's going to make it less boring, right? It's going to make it less restrictive. People feel they can do whatever they want it, if they can, right? It depends on your body, how you've looked after yourself. It depends on your genes as well. Part of this is luck, right? You know, but with, the, with a bit of luck and the right attitude, most of us can can go on doing amazing things with our bodies and minds and, and living lives that light us up, right? To the very end, you know? That's absolutely true. And I think that that's the, the thing that because of the, you, the psychological connection between our mind and our bodies, though, I think that, you know, you can put a, a, a straight, an, an age, a number related, age related straight jacket on. Yes. Because your mind then influences your body. You know, I, I felt it myself and I think you're so right. It's just, it, it's a number, not a straight jacket. And it, you know, it's about what doors are open to you and, you know, and what you're doing. I love what you said there. That's great. Well, really good. It's so, it's so true as well about the mind. I mean, some people on the kind of Panglossian view of, of taking on ageism say, well, of course, age is just, it's all in your mind. No, it's not. As I say, you know, it does matter how old you are. And it will affect your, your body and so on and, and mind in lots of different ways. But the idea that um, it is all defining, I think that's what we, we need to take down here. And, and certainly state of mind is important because all of the research, there's tons of research and science that shows that if you have a downbeat view of aging, you will age less well, mm -hmm. right? People who have a grim view of older life, you know, uh, have problems with their health more. They're likely to live seven and a half years less. They move more slowly. They think more slowly. Uh, just one example to, as I get towards the end of what we're, we're doing here, um, you know, they looked at people with a gene variant for dementia, and they found that people who had that gene variant, who had an upbeat view of later life, were 50% less likely than those who had a downbeat view of, of later life. You're 50% less, li less likely to develop dementia, right? So there, in a, in a nutshell, is exactly what we're saying here, which is that, you know, if you have a, a, a hopeful, optimistic view of aging, you are going to age better. And that, that's there for everyone, right? Whatever your, your age at the moment, whatever your ethnic group, whatever your social economic status, if you have an up, if you regard later life, if you try and embrace it as a process of opening doors rather than closing them, then you're going to age, you're going to age better, right? Than you would otherwise. And that, that's got to be a good thing for everybody. <laughs> absolutely brilliant that's it's it's been lovely talking about that i take a lot of food for thought for me personally about this now i've got some standard questions carl but before i go on to those i i i can't really miss the opportunity to ask you with your journalist hat on mm -hmm. and i guess as an author as well what your thoughts are on this whole fake news thing oh wow yeah gosh i find this a very very alarming moment and I'm not quite sure how we're going to get out of it. I mean, it's, yeah, I, when I lived in Latin America, and this is our echoes of this, you know, I lived in South America, where there was very little consensus on the facts. Everybody had their own version of the truth there. And I found that deeply, deeply unsettling. And it was such a relief to come back to the developed world where you felt like there was a kind of body of 
data, facts, occurrences, events, and we kind of agreed on them. We might disagree on the interpretation and how we felt about them, but we agreed on the facts. And now we're in this world where that, that commons seems to have evaporated. It's like people can't even agree on basic facts. You know, people are doc, you know, doc, in the White House, they're doctoring videos of journal. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, it, we've made this huge leap into an Orwellian moment. And I found it very, very scary. I must say, I, I, I know we've had a very optimistic podcast up until now. This is, this is definitely a, 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 a worrying note. Uh, you know, I, I can see people taking steps to try and combat it. You know, uh, was it Facebook recently announced a whole, you know, crack team or Google or Facebook, you know, of, of people who are going to be monitoring fake news and so on. But I feel like a genie has been let out of the bottle now and nobody's really clear on how to get it back in. Um, we do need to, goodness me, because this is the lifeblood of a healthy democracy is agreeing on facts and then disagreeing on how to interpret them. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I, oof, I, I find that, um, I, I find that troubling. So we need to find a way through it, basically. We do, yeah. And, and again, you know, as a natural born optimist, I feel like we, we will, you know, we'll stumble our way through this. Again, it's a new moment. And whenever we hit a new moment or a new technology, we go overboard, things get out of hand, it all looks apocalyptic. And then we reel it back in and, and find a, a, a way of compromising and muddling through. Uh, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like now. Uh, you know, I, I do feel like there's a big push within, and I, I still have a lot of friends in journalism, so I keep you know, an eye on what's going on in the media. You know, there is a big effort there to, to find ways through this, to combat fake news, to, to call out the sultans of fake news to, to, you know, all of this rolling back of in, in, on, on social media and pushing back of the kind of Russian interference in Western mm -hmm. elections, you know, steps are being taken, but we still have a long way. I don't, I, I'm not sure we've quite hit rock bottom yet. Uh, um, I hope so, but I suspect there's probably further to go. Oh dear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you for that. It's really interesting to hear your, your thoughts on it. Now um, I have some standard questions first one is what's the best thing that speaking has done for you i guess it's given me i guess it's, it's given me i guess it's given me confidence uh, self-confidence it's given me self-confidence and it's given me another platform to to get my ideas out cool and have you had a bad gig is, is there like a worst moment during your speaking journey so far that you can remember and you're happy to share have i ever, have I ever died on stage uh <laughs> i'm reaching for a bit of wood here to touch it and say a very relieved no, I haven't. Um, <laughs> That's good. I, I, I did have a, I, I had one recently where I went to, uh, I was spent five days in Lima, Peru, and I was speaking to teachers, parents, and students there. And one of the, one of the events I did, I did was for students, and they put me in a, in a big theater with about 50 kids in their teens, but they hadn't really, there was no microphone to go around, and they hadn't really briefed the kids on what it was about, and it just, it just became a kind of chaos. <laughs> I, I could feel myself even, and I'm not somebody who gets angry very often, but I, you know, I could feel, I could hear my kind of scolding voice coming out. I began to sound, my mom's a teacher and I can imagine she was quite scolding. And I could just feel myself sort of scolding them. And it just, that was a bit of a car crash, that event. Yeah, so that, that, that most recently, I would look back on that one. As a, and say so never I, again. Wouldn't want to repeat, uh, small, uh, you know, lessons learned, right? You know, <laughs> make sure there's someone there to moderate, make sure there's a microphone so people can hear what other people are saying in the room a smaller room, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, cool. Okay, thank you. And okay, what's the one book you've read that's had most impact on your life and why? Hmm. I sometimes think that it's The Quiet American by Graham Greene. Okay. A book uh, I read when I was in my teens and it was all about, it's about a journalist, a kind of cynical weather-beaten journalist in um, Southeast Asia. And it's all about, you know, how, how far should a journalist get become engaged in the story and what, what does he or she owe to the people involved? And it just, it, it got me thinking about, I think it probably helped me become a journalist. It got me thinking about my, where I would stand in the world and what I could do to change it and how far I should push. And, made me think about all those blurry lines between being involved and in covering something, being dispassionate. 
objective versus subjective and all this stuff. It's, and I still often think about it now. So I, I, would, I would say The Quiet American by Graham Greene. And a great book. I mean, Graham Greene is such a wonderful novelist and it's a tremendous read and hardly recommend it to anyone. Brilliant. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Okay, um, last couple. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever had and why? Um, well, I think it was get, get a website. <laughs> <laughs> And you have a very nice website too, which I'll be putting a link to in the show notes as well. And the last one then, if you could have one mentor and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Oh, that's, that's easy for me. Martin Luther King, oh, okay. uh, a, a, a flawed man, but a, a hero of trying to save the world and a, and a man who loved language and words and how they looked on the page and sounded in his mouth and, and knew the power of words and language. And I feel so much kinship with his message of love and light and also his love of language. And I just would love to have known him. And he, I would love to have had Martin Luther King as a mentor. Brilliant. Carl, thank you so much for, for sharing all of the stuff about the slow movement and, and Boulder. Now we talked about your website can you tell us what your website is called so people can have a look at what you're doing and maybe, you know, hear some of your talks and that sort of thing? Sure. Uh, that's very easy. It's just my name.com. So uh, Carl Honore, C-A-R-L-H-O-N-O-R-E.com. And everything is there from audio, video, blogs, links, you know, everything about the books. Uh, it's, it's, that's where it all happens. And also, Crucially, there is a contact page and I invite anyone who has a question or an observation or anything just to, to write to me. I love hearing from people. I hear from people all the time. I get back to everyone, not always instantly because one can't and I don't want to become the opposite of what I'm preaching by going too fast yeah. with my email management. But I, I get back to everyone and I've, I've made some amazing connections, even friendships and learned so much from hearing from people. So please don't make my website a one-way track you know throw 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 your own thoughts in and let me know what you think and presumably if people wanting to get you to speak they would also find how to do that there as well exactly yeah and in fact the easiest way to do that is also through the contact is just to send me a message and depending on where you are in the world you know we'll we'll, we'll kind of go from there and i've got agents and things but I'm, I'm usually the first port of call brilliant and if people want to connect with you on social media where's the best place for them to do that oh yeah i'm a big fan of social media <laughs> I, I do all these things. I tweet slowly. I do, you know, um, and it's, I'm easy to find there too. Cause again, it's just my name, uh, Carl Honore. And you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn, Instagram. I do a lot on Instagram and I love Facebook as well. Um, oh, I love using Facebook. I've got my <laughs> reservations about Facebook itself, but you'll find me on all those platforms and, and I'm, and I'm always there. I'm always engaged. Brilliant. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you again so much for sharing all of your insight and, uh, and opinions. And uh, it's, been, it's been fascinating to talk to you. And I will put links to your website and all the books in the show notes so people can go and check those out. And I will definitely be grabbing a copy of Boulder for my own edification as well. Thank you, Carl. Thanks. It's been great fun. Thank you. That was so cool. I have loads of stuff to take on board and I'm definitely going to look at how I can slow down where it matters and start looking on the bright side about getting old, despite the hairs on my chin. Anyway, go and check out Carl's website and books. There are links in the show notes and if you use these, you will be supporting the show as we get a small commission, but you don't pay anything extra. Only Amazon pays and that's a good thing. Anyway, just like Carl, I'd love to hear if you're getting value from the Speaking Club. So come and say hi on Twitter or Facebook at Sarah Archer 15 Okie dokie. Thank you so much again for listening. I know your attention is so valuable and I really appreciate you sharing it with me. And if you're enjoying the show and you're not subscribed, do that so you don't miss one. And if you are enjoying the show, do me a big favour and leave a review on iTunes. I read them all and it really matters to, to know what you think. And it'll take just two minutes. So have a smashing rest of the week and don't forget to slow down and uh, don't get hung up about getting older. Catch you later. Bye-bye. If you want to discover how to create a killer pitch that makes you or your business stand out from the crowd, then you'll want to grab your copy of my book straight to the top. 
It will help you clarify your USP, your business story, who your target market is, and what will make them buy. You'll discover how to get the edge on the competition and position your offer for success. You'll also get proven elevator and investor pitch frameworks to use for maximum impact. To get the book for free plus lots of extra bonuses, you just pay shipping and handling, go to standoutpitch.com today.